Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. For whatever hour you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Ross, and I'll be your guys who explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from our Missouri. In honor of the state's 200th birthday, our Missouri will feature a series throughout 2021 entitled Bicentennial Book Club, which discusses award-winning publications that detail the state's diverse history, as well as the stories behind the stories featured within their pages. Our guest today is William Foley. He holds a PhD in history from the University of Missouri and is presently a professor emeritus of history at the University of Central Missouri. He is the author of several books, including The First Chateaus, River Barons of Early St. Louis, The Genesis of Missouri from Wilderness Outpost to Statehood, Missouri Then and Now, and Wilderness Journey, The Life of William Clark. Welcome to our Missouri, Bill. Thank you. My pleasure. Now, to begin with, where did your interest in history really begin, and, and how did you shift to focus in on really colonial history and, and colonial history of Missouri? Well, I guess I always liked history. It was my favorite subject in high school. And when I headed off to college, I pretty much determined that I wanted to teach history and social studies. I, I completed my undergraduate degree at Central Missouri State College, which is now the University of Central Missouri. And in 1960, I accepted a teaching position in Raytown, Missouri, where I taught history and Spanish. Two years later, I returned to Central Missouri State to work on an MA degree in history. In my studies at CMS, I took a wide variety of his history courses that pretty much covered the waterfront. My route to Missouri history was almost coincidental. In a graduate seminar in American political history, I was assigned to write a research paper on David Barton, one of Missouri's first two US senators. Now that was my first opportunity to engage in real research using primary documents and also pretty much my introduction to Missouri history. It was a great experience, uh, made even better, I think, when the Barton paper was accepted for publication in the Missouri Historical Review. After that, I moved to MU to pursue a PhD in history with fields in colonial 19th century America, the American West, and Latin America. Lewis Atherton was my advisor. And in his regionalism and sectionalism course, I read Howard Lamar's then straight off the press book, Dakota Territory, a study in frontier politics. It had garnered a great deal of attention and I liked it. It 
suddenly occurred to me after reading that book that a similar study on territorial politics in Missouri offered possibilities as a dissertation topic, something that I had begun to think about. Dr. Atherton liked the idea, and so I prepared to embark on a, what was really a second foray into early Missouri history. Now, unbeknownst to me at the time, uh, my choice of a dissertation topic presented me with an unexpected opportunity at the beginning of my professional career. So shortly after I finished the degree and joined the faculty at Central Missouri State, Bill Parrish, uh, who had been appointed editor of a series no doubt Bill was acting at Dr. Atherton's suggestion, but at any rate, he asked me if I'd be interested in authoring the first volume for a multi-volume history of Missouri that the University of Missouri and the uh, MU Press had adopted as their contribution to the upcoming uh, Missouri statehood sesquicentennial. Hard to believe that was 50 years ago. It was, it's no surprise that I jumped at the chance. And so with a contract in hand, uh, I set out to complete the assignment by the target year of 1971. Now my dissertation had focused on Missouri's American territorial period. So my first task was to reach back and cover the colonial period under the French and Spanish regimes. My work for A History of Missouri, that volume one, really awakened me to the countless opportunities that early Missouri offered historical researchers, and I guess I was pretty much hooked. Among the host of unexamined subjects and untold stories that I discovered, I was surprised to find that, uh, among other things, the lives of two of Missouri's most prominent early inhabitants, Auguste Chouteau and William Clark had never been fully documented. Most of the work on Chouteau focused largely on his role in the founding of St. Louis and the existing accounts of Clark rested heavily on his great Western, Western expedition. There seemed to be so much more to be said about each of them. So, uh, and for various reasons that I can talk about later, Auguste and, Chute and Pierre Chouteau ended up as my next book project, and I was pretty well set in the field of early Missouri colonial history. Now, you mentioned Lewis Atherton there. Um and kind of his role not only in, in graduate school, but also later on with the, the History of Missouri series. Talk about your relationship with him and your, and your memories of him. 
I was so fortunate to have had Dr. Atherton as an advisor and, and a mentor. He was, of course, a renowned scholar, a master teacher, and also someone who cared about his students and gave them more than a full measure of his time. Uh, he taught by example. And to my way of thinking, he personified the historical profession at its very best. Now his sharp analytical skills and breadth of knowledge, among other things, enabled him to frame almost any issue and place it in a proper historical context. That was a gift that his dissertation students came to value very highly. Additionally, more than anyone, he taught me to appreciate good writing and showed me how to become better at it. To this day, when I'm struggling to frame a passage, I, I still sense his presence looming over me, searching for the passive voice or pointing out an awkward construction. Now, Atherton's interests were wide ranging. At a time when political history was very much the flavor of the day, he had ventured into other areas. His books on pioneer merchants and cattle barons garnered high praise. But Main Street on the Middle Border, an account of small town life in mid-America, particularly resonated with me as someone who had grown up in a small Missouri town. Atherton joined Merrill Curdy at Wisconsin and various others as advocates for the merits of social history, which was a field that was just emerging uh, within the profession. Now, one final thing, I, I, I would be remiss if I failed to mention that Dr. Atherton also directed my wife's doctoral dissertation. He kept in touch with us after we departed from Columbia and took an interest in our family. Martha completed her dissertation before I did. And I remember shortly thereafter, uh, Dr. Atherton was introducing us to uh, some, some colleagues and he with a chuckle uh, was happy to uh, present us as Dr. and Mr. Foley, he, he got a big kick out of that. You know, I think Dr. Atherton directed well over 40 PhD dissertations. He was really uh, a remarkable man. Now, before we jump into looking at some of your, your books individually, and, and you talk, talked about this briefly, but, you know, as a graduate student and even as the point that you're writing some of these early books in the in the 60s there and into in the 1970s, how were scholars at that time interpreting early Missouri history as you were beginning to look at it? Sean, you might be surprised, but 
when I first ventured into the field of Missouri history, the list of significant publications was pretty slim. Uh, I well recall that a comprehensive bibliography compiled for Mizzou's undergraduate Missouri history course was only a single page in length. The available works uh, focused heavily on political, military, and economic topics, and ones that were centered in the 18th and 19th centuries. There was remarkably little about Missouri in the 20th century at that point. Now, in early Missouri history, uh, when I started out, I, I guess Lewis Houck and Floyd Shoemaker were perhaps the big names. Uh, Houck's encyclopedic three-volume history of pre-statehood Missouri was a compendium of useful information. But typical of most works then, it had little to say about women. African-Americans, aside from brief mentions of slavery and indigenous people, apart from their clashes and interactions with European and American settler communities, uh, that was about the only mention that they merited. Now, his two-volume, uh, The Spanish Regime in Missouri, uh, contained a helpful collection of documents assembled by researchers that he had dispatched to the Spanish archives in Seville and in Havana. History was an avocation for Hauk. He was a wealthy developer and railroad promoter in Southeast Missouri who could afford to finance such undertakings. But those books were certainly a valuable starting point for me and for most anyone else at the time who wanted to explore in greater detail uh, early Missouri history. Floyd Shoemaker was, I guess, the recognized, well, I know he was the recognized authority on Missouri's admission to the Union and to a lesser extent, the post-statehood period. Now, as with most of his contemporaries, politics was his primary focus. Uh, Mr. Shoemaker was still around, and I can remember uh, seeing him when I first did work at the State Historical Society in Columbia. John Francis McDermott and Abraham Nassiter were two newer contributors to the histories of the French and Spanish eras in the Mississippi Valley. Both men, I should say, generously lent me a helping hand early in my career. Fathers John Francis Bannon and Barnaby Faraday at St. Louis U were also active in the field when I was getting started. Father Faraday uh, became a longtime friend. Well, those were uh, 
some of the, the major writers uh, that I could call upon when I when I started out. You mentioned John Francis McDermott there, and, and I was intrigued by his name as I was going through some of your books and, and you noting his his relationship and really the way his writing shaped the understandings of the Mississippi River Valley. Talk a little bit about him and, and some of those writings a little bit. Sure. Now, interestingly, McDermott was best known nationally for his writings about uh, early American Western painters like Bingham and Audubon and Charles Dees and John Casper Wilde. But in Missouri, he was the preeminent authority on early St. Louis. He wrote numerous articles and edited several important volumes about the city's founding, its early years, and the French and Spanish regimes in the Mississippi Valley. He was a descendant of Pierre Leclerc and the Chouteaus, and thus he made them the paramount characters in his accounts of St. Louis's early history and allowed Auguste Chouteau's narrative of the settlement of St. Louis to shape his story of the city's founding. Until recently, that version of those events was almost universally accepted, and by some it still is. Now, McDermott was a first-rate historian, and he had intended to make a biographical study of his distinguished forebears, Leclerc and the Chouteaux, his crowning work. But as the years passed, he increasingly concentrated on Leclerc. One of uh, McDermott's problems, I think, or maybe it really wasn't a problem, but he was so broadly focused on so many topics in addition to those on early St. Louis that he was turning out articles and so on. And so it took away from his time to really focus or concentrate on a, on a single study. But at any rate, as the years passed, he more and more turned his attention to Leclerc. Now, I learned from Francis Stadler, the archivist, at the Missouri Historical Society in St. Louis that he'd pretty much given up on a full-fledged uh, study of the Chouteaux and was just going to focus on Leclerc. That opened the door for me and she arranged for me to meet with McDermott in St. Louis at his home. You know, archivists are such an asset for historians and they can help us in untold ways. And Francis was very, very useful and helpful for me in my research. I, when I met with Mr. McDermott, I explained my intent to write a joint biography of both of the Chouteau brothers, Auguste and Pierre. And he gave the project more or less his blessing but with a stern admonition for me to keep away from Leclerc, which in truth would not be possible given his relationships with the Chouteau family. But I proceeded and 
when the work was nearing completion, I'd gotten a, a, a brief note from him. I'd written him to tell him that. And uh, he said he would be glad to review it and take a look at it, which I was quite pleased with. But at that point, McDermott tragically died following an accidental fall. And thus I was unable to take advantage of his offer. But his widow, Mary Stephanie McDermott, did give me access to his unpublished findings concerning what was the smoking gun that forever settled once and for all the perennial question, had LeCled fathered all of Madame Chuteau's younger children, uh, even though they had kept the Chuteau name? Well, he had the final evidence, uh, and that was quite useful uh, for uh, David and me in terms of the book. Uh, I should mention, with regard uh, to the Chuteau book, at the outset, by far the best decision I think I've made was to enlist my talented friend and colleague, David Rice, to join me in the venture. David was a specialist in French history, uh, a recent PhD from Emory who had joined the faculty at uh, uh, the university. And he had a great command of the French language and was an ideal partner for the project. Uh, collaborations don't always work, but ours was a wonderful one that did indeed work. So uh, that's a little bit about my association with McDermott. Now, in writing the first chateaus and, and then later on with the genesis of Missouri, how did you attempt to build upon and in some ways amend or, or, or alter the earlier interpretations of Missouri's colonial history that we, we've talked about? Well, we benefited uh, tremendously from McDermott's pioneering studies, but as we approached it, we set out to cast the story of the Shuto brothers in a somewhat wider context, apart from what was at the time the prevalent and, dare I say, somewhat parochial focus on St. Louis history. It was almost totally focused on the founding story and the narrative of the uh, the rise of the great city in the, uh, in the, on the Mississippi. Um, and it was our intent to move beyond that and to connect uh, the Shuto brothers with a world that was changing with the altered financial, or, uh, governmental regimes from uh, French to Spanish to uh, the United States to connect them with international diplomacy, with Indian policy and Indian relations, which they were very adept, and with the fur trade business, 
and with frontier mercantile activities. So that was our intent to put this in this broader context. Now, along with McDermott, as I mentioned, Nassiter's work was helpful, but it didn't extend into the US period. Now, one of the things that we did was to follow them in this transition, and it was an important one, as they moved from being subjects of French and Spanish colonial regimes to becoming citizens of the American Republic. And that was quite a transition, and they proved themselves very adept. They were uh, skillful businessmen. It was They recognized it would be to their advantage to connect themselves with these incoming officials. Now, the adaptations that the Chouteau brothers made enabled them and their the members of their succeeding generations of the family to cut a wide swath in the story of American expansion and development. So you have the Chouteau name, founders uh, or involved in the founding of St. Louis and Kansas City, but then uh, their reputation extended far beyond that. Uh, Auguste Pierre Chouteau ends up and becomes a prominent figure in Oklahoma. Pierre Jr. Uh, becomes the uh, head of the American Fur Company and uh, indeed uh, Pierre, South Dakota is named for him and there's Chouteau, Montana. And so they cast a wide swath. Now, uh, in terms of American uh, expansion and development. Jay Gitlin at Yale uh, uh, has continued their story uh, forward and, and really highlighted uh, the vital role that French Creole merchants played in Western development. Beyond that, uh, Carl Eckberg and Patty Cleary and Sharon Person, to name only a few, have helped elevate the significance of Missouri's colonial past and make it uh, increasingly a part of uh, national historical narratives so that we're seeing more uh, attention to French uh, colonial and to Spanish and to the indigenous uh, populaces in the general histories. That was something that wasn't there when I was starting out. As I continued my studies on early Missouri, one of the things I came to appreciate was the importance of the ongoing struggle to define Missouri's cultural identity uh, as its indigenous, French, African, and Anglo-American inhabitants clashed and mingled. Uh, both in the colonial and in the American periods. Eager to more effectively highlight Missouri's racial and cultural diversity, along with including more stories of uh, ordinary life and daily living, I proposed to the 
powers at the University of Missouri Press uh, to revise volume one in the History of Missouri series, which by that time was more than 15 years old. Uh, the editors at the University Press gave me the go ahead. And so when I submitted the manuscript, which I had really sort of viewed as simply a revised and enlarged version of volume one, I was surprised to learn that after reviewing it, they had concluded that although the time period it covered matched the earlier volume, uh, it offered a more expansive portrait and deserved to be published as its own separate title. And so uh, that's how the genesis of Missouri came into, into print. Uh, and in the Missouri history classes that I taught, uh, I frequently used that book to illustrate how understandings and interpretations of the past evolve and change by making comparison between the two, the two books. Now, I believe that these are the things that make the historical enterprise so challenging and exciting and frankly, so much fun. In going through your, your biography of William Clark, I noticed that you that you admitted it that at the time you were you were publishing it or, or contemplating publishing it, it was coming up on the bicentennial of the Wilson Clark expedition, and that it kind of inspired you to reevaluate a topic that you had considered all the way back, you know, at the time of, in graduate school and early career. How had scholarly interpretations of Clark changed between that point in time in the '60s? all the way up to the early 2000s, and how did you yourself interpret the man? Well, as I previously noted, uh, I'd been long interested in William Clark because of his important role in Missouri following the expedition to the Pacific, but I pretty much stayed away from pursuing a biography because other historians already had work underway, uh, notably John Lowset, LSU and later Jim Rhonda. Now, Rhonda's exemplary book, Lewis and Clark Among the Indians, uh, was a pathbreaking uh, book that altered uh, a lot of views of uh, Lewis and Clark and particularly uh, their associations with Native people. And of course, played the wonderful reviews. Now, as the expedition's bicentennial observances drew nearer, uh, the absence of a full-fledged biography of Clark remained kind of a noticeable and obvious void. Meriwether Lewis was already the subject of several biographies including Stephen Ambrose's best-selling uh, Undaunted Courage, but still no Clark biography. Now, my involvement changed when Martha Cole, an editor at the Montana Magazine of Western History and a friend from her days at the Missouri Historical Society in St. Louis, 
advised me that Jim Rhonda had decided to abandon his Clark biography. So once again, another door <laughs> sort of opened up and I jumped at the chance. With that in mind, uh, I opted for early retirement in 2001 so that I could complete a book in time for the bicentennial. Now, the primary emphasis on Clark had always been on his role in the Pacific Expedition. And while that was certainly an essential part of his story, it was only a part. And as I said, I had been very interested in his post-expedition years in Missouri. Now, thanks in part to Rhonda's work, the Lewis and Clark Bicentennial focused increased attention on indigenous people uh, and their crucial roles. But Clark's involvement with them extended far beyond the expedition uh, and was a major aspect of his career in military and governmental service, which encompassed virtually half of his life. Now, capturing Clark's complexities was not an easy task. First, there was the matter of his relationship with his tragic and somewhat flawed partner for whom he really became sort of a steadying presence both during the expedition and afterward until Lewis's untimely death. Also, Clark's dutiful acceptance of the US government's policies of dispossession and cultural uh, genocide uh, proved very costly, obviously, for America's already besieged indigenous populace. But while Clark held firm to his nation's expansionist agenda in his official capacity. His firsthand dealings with Native people made him acutely aware of the devastating consequences of the policies he had helped implement. Now, his attempts to confront those matters were doomed to fall short. Uh, additionally, Clark's racism and ardent defense of slavery had to be addressed and were no less a blot on his character. Awful as his shortcomings were, there were so many things to appreciate about the positive contributions he made in the service of his country and family. And so these were some of the things that I was trying to juggle with and address in writing uh, The Wilderness Journey. Finally, in, in July 2021, uh, renowned scholar uh, and certainly scholar of Missouri history, uh, Perry McCamless passed away. Uh, you spent many years at the University of Central Missouri with him and ultimately co-published Missouri Then and Now. Talk a little bit in concluding here about your memories of Perry McCamless. Perry was 103 when he died this year. He accomplished many wonderful things, both personally and professionally. For me, he was a lifelong friend, 
colleague and mentor who greatly facilitated my career as a historian. He introduced me to the study of Missouri history, taught me the elementary techniques of historical research, and played a major role in my decision to join the University of Central Missouri's uh, faculty. Now, Perry specialized in 19th century Missouri history, and his volume two in the History of Missouri series, which covers the years 1820 to 1860, and the numerous articles that he published in the Missouri Historical Review continue to be regularly cited by uh, other writers. When a national textbook publisher approached him about uh, writing a fourth grade book on Missouri history, he invited me to join him as a co-author. Well, that was quite an undertaking moving to writing for fourth graders, but really a challenging one to try to bring together what are the essential themes and the major things that uh, young people should know about their state and, and its history. Uh, Missouri then and now became a standard text in Missouri classrooms and throughout its many editions, it has sold more than 90,000 copies. And at one point, uh, uh, unbelievably, it was the University of Missouri Press's best-selling publication. Well, Perry was in large major responsible for that. And, and he, he also wrote a couple of texts uh, for high school and college students on Missouri history. Beyond that, uh, Perry's likable and self-effacing ways endeared him to virtually anyone who knew him. Throughout his long and productive life, he remained interested and engaged. And our weekly visits that lasted until the final weeks of his life were always instructive and enjoyable. And deservedly, I think, the State Historical Society honored him with its Distinguished Service Award in 2001. I truly miss him. Thank you very much for joining me today, Bill. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the R Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri.